Hello, this is Brooke Brown from Trending Topics with BB Podcast. Fantasy sports fans are winning huge cash prizes every day at DraftKings.com, America's favorite place to play daily fantasy sports. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitments, play whenever you want. So just pick your sport and draft your team. It's like a new season every time you play, so you're never stuck with the same players. Over $1 billion will be won at DraftKings.com this year, and you could be the next one to win big. Go to DraftKings.com now and enter promo code CULTURE to play free. That's CULTURE for free entry now at DraftKings.com. Not a fan of fantasy sports? Well, that's okay. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trendingtopicswithbb and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash trendingtopicswithbb. That's audibletrial.com slash trending topics with BB and get started today. Why Audible? Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Trending Topics with BB. Yes, it is updated. We are going to feature guests. It is new and improved. It is great. I am your humble host, Brooke Brown. Hence the BB of the trending topics with BB part. Ah, light bulb just went off in your head. All right, to move on, you can find me at my website and where these episodes are always posted at brookmbrown.com. You can find me on Twitter at saxy15. That is at s a x y one five. And all my other social media links are available on the website as well. So moving on, let's. I want to talk a little bit about my guest before we get into the conversation that we had. Um, my guest is a musician, a friend, a real human being. His name is Law. Uh, it's somewhat of a nickname. Um, Harold's back. He'll tell you the story of how he got his name. Um, and we met on social media actually a few years back, and we've been talking over years, have common interests in music, themes about the business. He's a very real human being. I really take to real human beings out there. So I don't want to take away from the conversation that we had about that. So without further ado, welcome to the Planet 12 Law Nation. For me. So um, oh, thank you. Same here. Um, so uh, we'll get into the nitty gritty uh in a minute, but I, I kind of want to start with the basics and then kind of go with that. So let, let's go over, um, again, I'm going to ask this question. I know I did it in the pre-show, but uh, how, you <laughs> began, um, how you got your name of Law, and that's your brand. And that's what, you know, a lot of people will probably call you Law as opposed to your given name. So let's kind of go over what your musical influence is and your family and, and any story you, you, you know, you want to share with the listeners out here. That way they kind of get a little glimpse into you. Uh, and the question I have for you is: Does one have time? <laughs> it's so much to, it's so much to cover. Um, well, let's let's start with the basic part. Um, my name, um, my, my my rap name was given to me by my older brother, Casino Chip. You know, and we we were always inseparable as kids and everything. And you know, he was the first one to call me Law, and it just stuck because before previous before that, everybody just called me Lawrence and. That was to sit out a regular plain ass name, and then he was the one that just started calling me Yo Law. It's like, 
that was all. He's like, well, that's the first two letters on your name. And I was like, oh, damn, I didn't even think about that. So it worked to my advantage. And around that time, and like in the late, late 80s as a kid, there was a show called L.A. Law. And I took that name and I ran with it. So, I, you know, in, in hip-hop at that time, the acronym thing was real popular. Every rapper that had a name, they always had they always had a meaning behind it. You know, like LL Cool J, of course, his ladies love Cool James. And um, Kane Asiatic, nobody's equal. That's Big Daddy Kane's, um, the, the first first four letters of, of Kane. And I came up with one myself. So L.A. Law was lyrical assassinator loving all women or lyrical assassinator giving lyrical ass whippers. And this is both sides of my musical personality because um, I'm from that school where I grew up, you know, being heavily influenced by New Edition, Force and D's, and UTFO because all three of those groups, they could all sing and they can rap. And at that time, the singing and rapping thing wasn't as popular until these guys put it on the map. So I'm, I'm a child of that environment, you know, where I can sing for real and I can rap for real. So L.A. Law at that time kind of fit. And as I got older, I just shortened it to Law. So um, to break it on down, basically, is um, the first three letters of my name is L.A.W., so that's self-explanatory. And then the second part, which is, you know, LA, L.A.W., um, which is Lyrical Assault Weapon, that represents my hip-hop side. And Loving All Women also represents my R&B smooth crooner side. So there you go. Nice. I always like, you know, the stories behind, and I like that it's become your brand, too. I mean, it's not only a play on your your actual given name, but also kind of the influences and, and a family tie. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. It's more than just a nickname to you, you know. Yeah, There's, yeah. It, it's it's good. And so we originally connected on Twitter years ago because we have a mutual respect for not only New Edition, like you just mentioned, but mm-hmm. New Kids. And um, we've kept our dialogue going over the years. So yes, we let's have. Kinda, oh, yeah. um, before we kind of get into your album, I know you have a new album coming out. Um, you ha- you still have, we'll plug your albums you already have out um, in a minute, but kind of go over, yeah, as you just mentioned, the three kind of musicals, not only influences between new edition and rap. So I imagine growing up at home and the way you grew up, you grew up with kind of an eclectic mix and you, you embraced the different types of music and that's kind of influenced oh, yeah. you in what you create now. So kind of let's take a glimpse back to like what it what was like kind of growing up and kind of, uh, you know, it, it, we just heard the story of your name. Now kind of like what really inspired you with these artists because a lot of people don't, you know, say they're a new kids fan, you know, it's still taboo or, you know, they'll bring up new edition, but only if they hear other people will are also fans. So kind of get at that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny that you said that, too, because that the thing with, with me and my brothers and, and my, my cousins and, and things of that nature is that we didn't we didn't really have what they call guilty pleasures. We didn't give a fuck about that shit, to be honest with you, because we liked what we liked. And that was just it. If we thought it was corny, it was corny. If we thought it was good, we thought it was good. So, and if it was something that was laughable that became good, then it's almost like, well, you can't really make fun of this because, you know, this shit is actually dope. And that's the kind of family that, that I grew up in because we listened to everything. You know, my family was my Juilliard for music, so it was easy for any one of my family members to 
how to, you know, set up a class, so to speak, you know, not in the formal sense of school, but because if you hung around one family member long enough, you found out what their passion was. So going down the line, you know, my late legendary grandfather, Sam Blues Man Taylor, who's already a Blues Hall of Famer and was in the game and worked with so many people like Otis Redding and the Ozzy Brothers, that was already a standard set. So we had the early rock and roll and blues and soul thing with him. And then my mother, who was a first-time, first-place Apollo winner at the Apollo Theater in New York City, she was all about R&B and gospel. So that's how I learned the female side of stuff. So Shaka Khan and Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight and Natalie Cole, Donna Summer. You know, I grew up with that part of it. Then you have my uncle, Tony T. Funk Austin, who is a noted drummer on the Brooklyn local scene before he went off to go and play with a lot of different people, one of them being James Brown and another one being cool in the gang. So I had to funk right there, you know, if I wanted to learn about the Commodores, the Ozzy Brothers and, and Slave and and Chicago and the Barcades and the Gap Band and all that stuff, I went to him, you know. And then my cousin, you know, and my other cousin, you know, Uncle Showbiz, he was pure hip-hop because he used to hang out with Kumo D and all these guys in the Bronx. So we had to rap right there. And actually, it was Showbiz that actually taught me how to rap because very much like him, he was also a rapper, but he was a singer and a musician too. So in, in our household, as you can pretty much tell, long story short, it was Juilliard. Like everything was in the – nothing was off limits. Right. You know, and then my, then my older sister – who was very much about, you know, the latest dances and hip-hop and all that stuff, but she was also a new wave rock and roll head. So when MTV came out, she was, when she got her first apartment, she was one of the first people in our family to have the MTV channel. So that's how I discovered um, the Go-Go's and Billy Idol and all that kind of stuff that was happening in the 80s. So, and Thomas Dolby, you know, she blinded me with science. You know, all, I learned all this stuff being in the environment. And last but not least, um, my late grandmother, who was um, one of the top soloists in the choir of the United Missionary Baptist Church, because gospel is my first love. That's why I came up came up in the gospel church. So we had Shirley Caesar, you know, Tremaine Hawkins, and my mother sings gospel as well. And so does my aunt Karen, who's, who does Christian jazz with my uncle, her husband. They have a group called Character. So they do Christian jazz, and then um, her mother, my late aunt Vicky, you know, she was the, one of the first people in my family to, to become Christian. So 700 Club and Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir with my mother. So I, I had it all. Long story short, this was my life before I even turned 12. So right. music was just all around me. I was always heavily involved, singing in church. You know, in talent shows, you know, actually I won my first talent show singing New Editions Lost in Love. So that goes to show you the gamut of, of what me and my, my, my siblings and my cousins, we were always either doing sports or we were involved in music. There was always something going on. Right. And I kind of, I didn't grow up in that prestige, but uh, I, I am blessed that I grew up listening to different types of music as to why I, I do have an eclectic kind of taste yeah. of music, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I believe it's kind of important for people, um, I don't know. It, it's, no, it's, it's very important, because the thing is that, you know, musical education is a dying art form these days. There's barely any music programs in the school anymore, and when I was school teaching for some 11 years or so, I made it a point to add my curriculum to the school where I was teaching at, which was actually owned by my aunt, so she allowed me to teach 
these children who are now pretty much adults at this point, I was teaching them, you know, everything that I had learned because I realized that when I was going to school, we, I, had, I only had one cool music teacher. His name is Mr. Pearson. And they had to force him to teach classical, but instead of teaching classical, he taught us jazz instead. So the cool thing is that he was able to um, to use his own curriculum, and it was very influential to me. So I promised myself one day if I ever became a teacher of any sort, I would use my own curriculum so I could show the kids the full musical spectrum. And it worked for me because considering the generation and everything else that was in it, you know, a lot of these kids now, you see them now, they have a better understanding that they realize they're not doing anything new anymore. See, before, I was like, oh, that's that new stuff. I'm like, yeah, a couple of things are new. I said, but for the most part, y'all just taking stuff that we did seven years before you. So it's just like, you know what I mean? So they're they learning that it, it's, you know, no, no, I said it best, no idea is original. Everything is a recycle of something. You may get a few new touches every now and then, but it, it pretty much recycles. So it's very musical education and eclecticism, if there's such a word, is very, very important, you know, you have to use that to your advantage. My musical moves change daily, as you pretty much know. One day it's Led Zeppelin, next minute it's Johnny. Like, I, I'm very, that's just pretty much how I am, you know, even though I'm mostly known for my hip-hop and funk rock and R&B and all that kind of stuff, you know, people love when I speak about some of the stuff I have in my collection, because then, as you see, we get deep, we get deep into it on social media, and then you won't have to worry about Somebody having, I think that's the reason why a lot of some of the, um, the fans of the new kids on the block kind of, um, gravitated towards me during our conversations because they realized I was real. <laughs> you know, right. me, me naming songs and knowing the history and then I told the story of how I saw new kids on the block very first show at the Apollo. So they would be, we was already believers from that point on and we never had that struggle in the hood where I had to hide that I was a fan of New Edition or New Kids on the Block. I didn't have, I didn't go through any of that. Because it was almost like, well, damn! It, if anything, it was more like, if Law likes it, it must be cool. That was that was the whole thing with them because they couldn't they couldn't fathom it. Really, Law? Right. New kids on the block? Really? Vanilla Ice? Really? Really? Right. Country music? Come on, Law! You joking, right? You be playing with us, right? Like no. And it kind of made them say, okay, Law's just deep with it. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure some people thought I was crazy. I'm pretty sure about it, but they never really expressed it to me, and because of where I grew up at, which is St. Mark's Avenue, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and already had a street rep, you know, it wasn't to me that going to value their help was going to come to me and confront me over something that I like. Because back then, bullying wasn't as prevalent as it is now. It's more crazier now than it was, you know, 15-something, 20-something years ago. So I didn't really have those problems when it came to me being eclectic with music. Right, and, and as you just mentioned that in the Apollo show, let's kind of go back. When you think about the Apollo show, and I guess um, for our listeners that may not know the history, for the new kids to be embraced by an all-black audience um, at that time, it wasn't necessarily – well, it was, I guess from my interpretation, it was a little bit the music, but a lot about the hard work ethic and the fact that they did have. They were influenced by New Edition, and they grew up in kind of an era where you know they were being seen as the next kind of urban type of group. But well, yeah, I mean, not to cut you off. I mean, you just pretty much nailed the point. I mean, the thing was is that 
my uncle Bobby Taylor, God bless his soul, he was a 13-time winner at the Apollo. My mother won first place there. She only did it once. My grandfather was already a veteran there because he played with all the famous groups like Joy Dean, the Starlighters, and Maxine Brown. So my affair with the Apollo is steeped in, within the tradition of my own family. So we used to go and see the regular shows. So I've seen a lot of people who later became famous, people like Johnny Kemp. You know, Johnny Kemp was a top dog winner at the Apollo before he released his now classic record, Just Got Paid. You know, we used to see him all the time before he even became famous. So at the Apollo, you know, fuck American Idol, fuck The Voice, fuck all those shows, because the thing is that at the Apollo, they will tell you how it is. They will let you know, no, you do not have it, boo, get off the stage, go back home and learn your craft. And that's the bottom line. So for a group like New Kids on the Block, who were obviously white, out of Boston, they came with it. See, the, the thing was separating New Kids from a lot of different white groups of their contemporary that would come a little later is that they weren't manufactured. These are boys that grew up together, but, you know, of course, with the exception of Joey being the, the external piece to the puzzle. But the other members all grew up in the same neighborhood. They went to school with each other. There's chemistry. You can't beat that. And a lot of times when you go in front of an audience, the crowd can see if y'all together. The crowd can tell. The crowd can tell either y'all been y'all been tight for so long or y'all just a group that just got thrown together and y'all don't have your shit together. So they will let you know. The bottom line is that Nukes on the Block did their homework. They paid their dues. You know, the three years, as you pretty much know, you know, they played to nothing but all black crowds. And keep in mind that this was before the cordless mics. <laughs> this is before lip-syncing technology where you, you really, when you played a place like the Apollo or Outdoor Festival, you really had to know how to sing. You had to right. know how to perform. You couldn't fake that. Like, you really had to, your vocals had to be on point and your routines had to be on point. You Which couldn't fake that. hilarious that years later they would be accused of lip-syncing, but... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, and, yeah, that, that's, that's a whole other situation, but in that situation with them, you know, Jonathan said it best. I saw an interview that he did years ago because there were parts of it, and not so much lip-syncing, but it was more like, okay, well, this part of the thing... You could tell it's them, but the, but look at their stage show. And it was different because by that time, they were already proven. So for them, for people to come at them and be like, oh, we don't know if these guys. They had did Arsenio Hall about probably four or five times previous to that. So it was almost like, how could you not know, especially when Arsenio Hall never allowed anybody to lip sync. You had to come up on stage and sing. Right. You know, and they, and they, not, and they may not be... As harmonic, and that's the thing that people always look at me sometimes when I say some shit about Gucci Harmony. I'm like, yeah, I do mean that shit. But at the same time, even if you're not the most harmonious group, if you have a collective of singers that deliver, that kind of eliminates the notion of, okay, y'all guys have to be like boys to men. Everybody can't be boys to men. Everybody can't be silk. Everybody has to have their position and play it, but be real about it. Don't try to come off like, you just and they never and new kids never really did that. They were just them. They never tried to come off like they were this group and we're gonna you know, they 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 people accepted them for who they were. And that's what we did. We never looked at you know, even with the whole white new edition thing, I mean of course I understood it because you know the, the history between both groups, so everything that part made sense. But at the same time I've always saw new kids from new kids because as as they got older you can see the difference between them and, and New Edition and, and every other and some of the other groups. It's a big difference. Right. You see the difference in those things. Even though you, you see the history and you see the, the um the 
That's the word I'm looking for. You see the, the homage that they have for other groups that help shape their sound, but new kids are new kids. So, Right. Well, you just mentioned something that I, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think we've talked about it on social before, but I used to watch American Idol back when it was kind of new, but I haven't watched that in years, and I'm so glad it's finally being canceled. And after <laughs> the first season of The Voice, I stopped watching it. I personally agree that there's a lot of things wrong with those type of shows. And I feel like, A, it's saying that things are a lot easier than they are. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, there's a lot more behind the scenes that the public aren't aware of in terms of, uh, well, I mean, the voice they show a little bit of, like, mentorship, but how yeah, often but... is somebody, how often is somebody going to get Adam Levine or Pharrell, who's really hot in the game right now, to actually just come up and be like, oh, this is what you need to do to be a star. That's not realistic in the business. It's not realistic, and on top of that, I want you to think about this for one second. For all the great, talented people that have come through to that show, and they lost or didn't make the final cut. You know, you know how they do it. Like, however they do it. And not one of those acts even came close for one of the judges to say, you know what, I'm really, really feeling you. So guess what? I'm going to bring you to the label reps. Or you know what? I'm going to take some of my money, and I'm going to invest in you. I can't do anything for you right now because I'm an artist, but you know what I can do? I can take some of my money and invest for you to set your own self up to start doing your own thing. See, to me, that's what I would do. I'm, I'm the kind of person that I give advice, of, you know, many times. And the thing is that I'm, you know, I'm still trying to reach my goal. But at the same time, I've always been taught from the very beginning from my grandfather that, you know, you help others in need and educate. You drop knowledge as much as you can and try to open, even if it's a small door, because you never know, that one little small favor or small thing that you do can snowball into something great. You don't know what you're pouring into people's lives if you try to open the door. So even if you don't have money to give, sometimes the little piece of advice can do a lot for an artist or anybody trying to move up. And because I've had had some experience in leveraging this game thus far, you know, I'm always reaching out and trying to see you know, what can be done. And I speak out and I educate. You know, I'm, I'm known I'm known, I'm known for my mouth, you know, just as much as my music because I'm very candid and very direct about what goes on behind the scenes because I have friends that were on these shows. So when people are like, how do you know that? I'm like, because I have friends who are on these shows. I have friends who are semifinalists. They told me everything. So I knew the truth Right after the third season is when I knew what the truth was because every time we would play somewhere, you know, you know how people are. You should go on the idol, you know, they didn't because they, all they see is the, the the glitz and the glamour and the, you won a million dollars in a recording contract and I'm just like, y'all don't know, man, that's bullshit. That 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 doesn't, you know, that that's the million dollars is to cover the course of what you're going to record. You already own because they manage you. You have no ownership. You have nothing. Right. And they don't, and that's the problem because they're not going to tell America what's going on behind the scenes because they'll lose their quota. Think about it. If they, if they told them everything that went on behind the scenes, nobody ain't going to watch. And see, after a while, people got tired, and that's why American Idol is pretty much done. And if you remember, I predicted this three years ago. Right. I knew it was I only a matter. Remember? 
I remember, you know, and I predict most things. I, you know, I always tell people I'm not a psychic, but I know my shit when it comes to this industry because at some point, you know, when it comes to things that are built upon propaganda, see, if it's fair, you can stay up. So even if you have a period where you're kind of lukewarm, you got your fans, you got people that will support you, and you just put out good music and people will come out and support you, whether you have a big machine behind you or not. But if you're operating in thievery and fuckery, what goes up will definitely come down. And this is the situation with American Idol. And think about it. X-Factor is no more even. The only X-Factor that exists now is in, the, is in the U.K. They don't have it here in America. And this is Simon Cowell's whole thing that he's been doing for so long and such and forth. But I just tell people, you know, an artist, go for yours, man. Grind and take it to the streets in the words of the Doobie Brothers. You know, get it out there and let them find you. Make them find you. You know, I mean, right. this, this, I mean, a perfect example, and I'm pretty sure you got the news today. Tonight, um, my song Get Down was played on the, the new Jaru reality TV show. Get right. Down is a four year old, it's like a five, really a six year old song, technically, because I recorded that song way before I even put out my first album. That was one of the first songs I recorded when I was putting my album together. And here we are in 2015, and my old shit is still getting selected for new shows. <laughs> So what does that tell you? You know, great music never dies, and they can't never say I'm, I don't make Thomas music because I was sitting at home out of my business when I got the news. <laughs> right. You know, doing my regular daily operation, you know, my regular grind, and I get a call saying, hey, Lord, guess what? We're going to feature your song tonight on the new Ja Rule um, show on MTV. So, I mean, you know, we just keep stacking credits. You know, my motto is resume and reputation is everything, so you build upon both until people begin to seek you out. And that's what will happen. You know, it's like that old Kevin Costner mantra, what he said, if you build it, they'll come. True story. And that's what it's about. And artists have to learn that now, that the long gone, long gone are the days of, I'm going to be discovered by so-and-so. And keep in mind, there are some people who are still, like, you know, Clive Davis every now and then, you know, you got this new kid, Avery Wilson, you know, who's a bad boy. I actually saw him live at the Long Island Hall of Fame last year, and that's his latest discovery. But he's one in a million. The rest of the executives, they're not really doing that. They, they're not really, unless they just really want what you have and they'll seek you out. But all these other artists who keep trying to, you know, send demos in and, and bug them on, bug, and bug, bug A&Rs on Twitter all day and scam them to death, that shit ain't gonna work. You know, it, it's not, it's a whole new ball game. So the best bet I tell all artists is to grind, find your lane, and work the hell out of it until people begin to talk. And, you know, things will happen. Right. Yeah, I just, and it's kind of funny because a lot of people, you know, know that around me say, well, why aren't you watching American Idol? Are you watching The Voice? And I go, no. And then I kind of just give them, like, a brief synopsis of why I'm not and how, you know, I like to discover up-and-coming artists and, and people that, connect and you know that they've put in the grind and that it's not as easy as those shows make it out to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All right. So um, kind of moving forward. So you mentioned your, your album and that song tonight on that new show. So for those that haven't listened to your music, which I have, but uh, <laughs> for those, you know, that may be new to this podcast, new as a listener, Kind of describe, before we get into what your new album's kind of going to be about, kind of go over 
Um, I know it was was a Grammy nominated. If I, your first album? Yeah, um, Gra- Grammy nominated more so through recognition in terms of made the, um, what, what a lot of people don't know is that in the Grammys, you know, they, the, your peers basically vote you in. And my album got voted, and a couple of the songs of the album got voted into the top 50 in, in about three or four, ca- I think about three or four categories, if I remember correctly. So it was in the list. You know, of course we didn't make the top five because we're not signed to a major label, so, but the fact that we made the list, that was enough to be nominated and put on the list and recognized by the Grammy Awards. I mean, that's everybody can't say that, you know? Well, maybe we should go back a little bit and backtrack a little bit. So let's talk about uh, your thoughts on the difference. And a lot of artists are doing this or separating, but separating from major record labels and, and mm-hmm. financing their own albums and then their own promotions. Can I talk about why... I, I, you know, from what I'm gathering, it's that's kind of the way the music industry is today. Why you do it, and maybe some other artists are, are going that route. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, quite frankly, the old system is not what it used to be. And even though you may have a few artists who come out and they're bragging about, yeah, we signed a six-figure deal with blah 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 blah, and it's mostly hip hop artists that do this shit because you don't really catch too many rock and roll artists bragging about who they signed with, but, you know, in the hip-hop community and in the R&B world, and I get it, you know, you're excited, you know, and you get a chance to make some money doing what you love to do, get your family out of the hood, you know, I, I get it, I'm from the so I understand, but I learned the industry at a very early age, so for me, you know, in the very beginning, like any other kid, you know, of course, you know, you're you're very green, so you're kind of, yeah, you know, I want to be a star. And it wasn't until I learned about my legendary grandfather's status because we always thought that my granddad was rich because of, you know, all the songs that he had written for so many different people. Of course, probably his most famous composition was um, Peace Pipe by the funk group BTC Express. My grandfather wrote that, and that was a million-selling single around the world. And he also wrote on a few of their albums that went gold to platinum. So he had all these gold records in his house in California. So we went to go visit him for the first time. Um, you know, we used to be amazed. He's like, oh, you know, he's crazy. He's like, wow. Like, we gotta... And little did we know, you know, because he had signed so many bad business deals and trusted so many wicked executives that he didn't really have a lot of the profits. And I think the reason why he was able to live good the way he did you know, up until he moved back to New York was because, you know, he was just a great, even for a man that suffered so much, he had a great heart. So a lot of the luminaries who he came up in the music business with, like Dick Clark and a few members of the Beach Boys were close friends with him. So they looked out for my granddad when times got a little bit rough, you know. So the thing is that I learned at an early age because he would always tell me, you know, sign your publishing papers. I went through it so you didn't have to go through it. So make sure you learn everything about this business. So he invested a lot of time in me to make sure that I was fully educated on how the music industry works so I didn't make the same mistakes that he did, which was, you know, he didn't have his own lawyer for certain things and he would just sign certain things away because he had to feed the family instead of holding on and trying to know his worth and, and double up certain things. So... By the time the hip-hop nation came around, like in the early 90s, the golden era, most of the rappers got smart. I mean, the later ones got smarter. But for the most part, you know, people like people like Master P, Dr. Dre, and, you know, um, Buckshot from Boot Camp Clip, like they all started 
these boutique labels or independent labels that would end up flourishing for years to come because they had control over their product and they got tired of dealing with the major labels that were giving them the runaround and robbing them and jerking the shit out of them, you know, and my idol's new edition probably has the worst story in <laughs> in the music industry. I mean, who who has a hit million a hit million selling record around the world? Candy Girl was number one in thirteen countries. They did a a, a crazy dope ass tour, only to come back home and made a dollar eighty seven. Right. Try splitting a dollar eighty seven among five members in a group. So, again, you know, the knowledge is priceless. Like, you really have to learn this industry because the old industry doesn't work the way it used to work because people don't realize it's almost like a bank. They loan you stuff. So when you hear all these guys talking about, yeah, you know, we signed to, we signed like for $500,000 and all this other, these big bonus signings and all this kind of stuff, 90% of the time, they don't realize that they, that they have to pay that money back because that's recoup. You have to recoup that money through your record sales. And because record sales don't sell like they used to these days, that's harder for anybody. So unless your name is Adele or Rihanna, you ain't going to make that quarter, <laughs> especially right. in hip-hop because hip-hop is not even as diverse as it used to be. See, well, before when it was diverse, if you look at the 90s and the early 2000s when they were still selling, rappers were still getting platinum albums, Look at the diversity. You had DMX. You had Eminem. Everybody was different from each other, so it made it easy for people. But then everybody started doing the same shit. So you look at this trap thing that's happening now with trap music. Not near one of these guys have a gold record. None of them. And who's the one selling records in the hip-hop game right now on that level? Drake. Think about it. You got to think about these things. Sometimes it's just right in your face, but people don't really know the industry. They don't study it. You know, then the fans, some, some of the fans don't really even care about that shit. And I get it. You know, some people are just not into the, the politics of the music industry. Some people just like the music and that they just want to stick to that. So that's cool. But for any aspiring artist that's listening to this podcast or just people who are very intrigued about how the industry works, you know, you're getting the real from somebody who's in it. You know, I'm around it every day. I, I, I'm, I'm in meetings. I see the things that go on that other people don't really see. You know what I mean? And, and I got friends who are even deeper in it than I am. So I learn even more as I go along. So I always encourage any artist or anybody who wants to get in the field or who's in the field of just starting out is to learn the business. Learn the business. You see all these people on Twitter that be crying about their record deals, you know, and, and what happened and this, that, and the third. You know, New Kids on the Block got their own label now. That's something they should have been did, but they they learned. You know what I mean? You learn after a while. It's like, look, man, we, we're big enough to control our own audience. We have a fan base, so we're going to just cater to our fan base. We ain't going to try to, you know, let a label tell us that we ain't hot when it's clear that we're still selling out shows, people still coming out to see them. Come on. That's when you know you're not. When people stop coming to see you, then you got a problem. Because they didn't even know. When they got back together and reunited, Danny said he wasn't sure. He said, you know, he was hoping for a few hundred or whatever. But as you see, the fans have been waiting for almost 15, 16-something years. And that was 2008. We're in 2015. They just did their, what, their fifth cruise? Sixth cruise? Seven. It's going strong, you know? Yeah. So, again, so, you know. So, being knowing that and knowing how music has evolved and the actions that artists and musicians like yourself are taking. So let's kind of go back to my original question about 
your your first album, or not, I don't know if it's your first album, but, you know, the album. Yeah, my first album. Yeah, uh, they know you most for and kind of have seen, um, which I will say is available on iTunes, go get it. Um, <laughs> yeah, just kind of go with, like, how, I mean, it's it's a full EP, correct? And, I mean... There's well, no, it's, it's the first album is a full LP. That was the very first album. Okay. So just kind of talk, you know, about what led you to record, you know, the diversity that maybe that we spoke about in the beginning about being raised on a collective taste kind of led to... Oh, I mean, yeah, that that's that's pretty easy. I mean, the thing for me was my grandfather always told me that your first impression can be your last impression, so make it your best impression. And I ran with that since I was a kid, because even in my stage shows, I was always doing the most. Like, I would always have to do anything that came to mind that would get a reaction out the crowd. So whether it was me doing a rock and roll guitar solo or doing a couple of splits, you know, hitting a couple of riffs vocally and spitting a couple of freestyle verses. I put that all in my show. So the whole thing of when I put the album together was to take the energy from my show and everything who I am and put it into an album, which means that every song had to be different. It still had my flavor. Everything had to be different even with a certain amount of flavor. Everything had to be in sync with each other. And, um, you know, Planet 12, when I came up with that name, I was 13 years old. Because Planet 12 pretty much exemplifies and explains my love for music. I look at music as a one big planet. And on the planet, there's so many different things to conquer on that planet. And 12 being my favorite number because there's 12 notes of music. So everything made sense. So that's why it's called the Planet 12 Syndrome because it was a fever that I wanted everybody to catch. For for people that love more than one style of music, my album was for you. I wanted to make an album that everybody can get into. If you love hip-hop, we got that. If you love jazz, we got a little bit of that. If you love R&B, contemporary R&B, traditional R&B, we got all of that. If you wanted just straight-up, raw, real hip-hop, we got that. If you love techno dance house music, we got that. You know, because prior to me making my album, um, the record labels who we would try to shop to, they would always turn us down and tell us the same shit. And it was so funny to us because years later, the same stuff that they rejected from us, other people got signed with. And it was just real funny to me because they would tell us things like, oh, that's too retro. Nobody's going to really, nobody wants to hear a singer and a rapper. Next thing you know, Lauren Hill comes out and wins four Grammys doing the same shit. The Roots, same thing. Outcast, same thing. Alicia Keys, even though she was in rap, but she had a strong hip-hop influence in her work. Same shit. And we was doing all that. So it was kind of funny to us. You know, I didn't I didn't get mad or anything. I just was like laughing. I'm like, there's a whole army of us that's doing diverse music, and here y'all are fronting on me. I don't know what the deal is, but I stopped complaining. I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to do this shit myself. And the drive and everything else that was happening in between that became you know, the foundation of what I was going to stand on. We had, we had been making demos. I put out a couple of things on vinyl. Didn't really do too much, but it was enough to conquer a few people's attention that led me to meet some of the people who would be influential in my career. And um, right around the time when I started working with the, the late, the great, my friend Amy Winehouse, the album was still a demo. 
And I remember giving it to her boyfriend, Blake, because um, Blake was really into real hip-hop. But, you know, Amy was too, but me and Blake was having a, a, a good relationship on the road. You know, we were getting to know each other and stuff. It's like, oh, you cool, you cool. And then he was like, yeah, they told me you, you do hip-hop too. I was like, yeah, man, I got a couple of things. He said, let me hear it. He heard it. He let Amy hear it. And Amy went nuts. And that's how I ended up becoming her opening act in New York City. So this is right before the album came out. But that inspired me. When Once Amy told me she liked it, and everybody around me kept saying that the demo was good. I knew I was on to something. So I tried to get with this manager. They wanted to put this stuff out, and they had me waiting forever. And, you know, you had to do this. You know, it's like the, the usual BS manager stuff. And I just dropped everybody all together, finished the album, just put it out myself, and did exactly what we wanted to do because we knew we wasn't going to go platinum you know, overnight or, or, or at all for the, for the most part. We just want to make an album that's going to get some attention. And that's exactly what the Planet Soul Syndrome did. It got the attention that I wanted because it led me to my fan base I have now and people begin to recognize what we were doing. You know, now Rogers, um, Rosanna Arquette, you know, Diane Warren. I mean, come on. It, it, it was crazy. Like, I was getting this crazy response from everybody. So... You know, that's what the first album represented, and that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted people to go, what the fuck is this? I wanted that reaction. I wanted to, for people to be like, who's this? That's how I felt when I discovered all my favorite artists. You know, it was like the first time I heard Terrence Trent Darby, it's like, who the fuck is this? But he's dope. <laughs> and I wanted right. to create that same type of energy with my stuff. I wanted people to go, oh, shit. And especially for me, because I was already on Twitter kind of promoting my brand before the music had even really took place, and people just was loving my conversation. And I figured, okay, if they love my conversation, because like I always say, if if the music wasn't good, y'all wouldn't give a fuck about what I'm talking about. Y'all wouldn't care. Think about it, because I could be talking about, oh, that person's whack, or the music industry is bullshit, but then you hear my music, my music is bullshit. So right. you're going to be like, I ain't listening to nothing you got to say. So thank God that I'm blessed with the gift to make great music, and that's evident again today because of me getting played on John Roo's new show. That just shows you how strong my material really is. That's just proof right there. I mean, they could have they they called me up and asked me for a new song because, you know, we, we, um, we almost finished with the new album, and they got something from the catalog. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it, it, it's a great feeling, and I, I can't really describe it because that album is still working a lot of wonders for me and my team. It still it still has an impact and influence and we ain't even dropped the second album yet. I mean we got the live album now. That's that was the E P you was talking about. We put out the live album so I guess you know, I hate to call live album second albums because we ain't really putting them it's just live versions of the songs that, that we put out on the first album. But nevertheless, it still counts as a as an LP that stands on its own because it's live and it's raw and organic. Because you know, I want to put out an album to kind of keep the fans hungry, you know, keep them keep them fed while while they wait for the for the Psychotic Chameleon project. But it was also to show that it was live. You know, it was live on stage. It wasn't no you know because you know the studio anybody could do anything. So I want to show them that you know I am who I am on stage too, even when I'm not in the studio. This is real. So, right. Know. Okay, so uh, you just mentioned kind of what I was going to go into. So so talk a little bit about um, the friendship and collaborations and inspiration you got from Amy Winehouse because um, 
a lot of people don't know you were as close as you were, that maybe new listeners are, are becoming new fans. Uh, a lot of us that have, you know, been in touch with you for a while kind of know this. But kind of go into your relationship with Amy and, uh, and kind of how all that kind of, like you mentioned, helped with the album you just talked about. It, it just, you know, Amy, oh, man, I, it's... I get emotional when I talk about Amy, so you, it'll take me, if, if you take me a couple of breaths to understand why. It's because, you know, Amy didn't have to do what she did for me. She don't owe me anything. I came into that situation replacing one of her original background singers, and it just so happens that the first two American TV debuts was the, the gigs that the guy wasn't doing, so they brought me in there to replace on the strength of that and doing the, the whole situation with Amy, whereas I was already in love with her material because actually it was um, Fuck Me Pumps that actually led me to want to work with Amy. When they originally asked me, I didn't know who she was, but I'm, at that point in my career, I was like, I'm not just singing back up for anybody. I got to see what kind of music this is and do I even want to be a part of this because at that point I was really focusing on my destiny and after my years of singing with George Clinton, and still doing that to this day, but at the same time, I was taking a break from that because I wanted to do some things on my own. And I realized, I'm like, if I'm going to sing behind somebody, I need to know what this is. And the minute I heard her voice and I called them back, after I got the phone with them to accept the job, I went and bought the first album and started looking at all her videos. And she she stole my heart musically. I was done because she, you know, she we grew up with the same type of thing. You know, she she loved Motown, she loved jazz, she loved reggae, she loved hip hop. She was an infusion. And uh, let me just say this um, as a sidebar, um, you know, at the time when Amy came out, the world was being conquered by Lady Gaga, and rightfully so, because I love Lady Gaga. Lady is another most talented woman herself, and who's also an Amy. She was also a diehard Amy fan as well, but because of Lady Gaga's um, conquering of the charts with all her dance stuff, because, you know, she Lady Gaga don't get enough credit. She brought the dance element back to, to the mainstream. She brought it back. You know, Poker Face, Just Dan, that whole first album pop, that was all dance, techno, club stuff. And she brought that element back because she brought back the melody and the structure that went along with those classic early 90s dance songs. And she just kind of upgraded it for, for this generation. But there was no balance because now all the record labels tried to get clones like her. They were trying to make all these other girls do dance music. If you notice, if you if you if you know your history, look at that look at that era between 2006 and 2008. How many artists you seen that were doing dance records that you normally wouldn't see doing them? Yeah, it was an hmm? explosion. See what and I'm he, saying? Because yeah, see what I'm what, saying? So that sorry. Well, what I was going to say is that. I mean, being a, a dance music junkie like I am, it was just how it's created such kind of that you can't really hear new music today. I mean, without collaborations within that genre. So yeah, yeah, it, it was crazy. So you know, Amy broke the mold, man. She brought the real shit back, and I was happy to be a part of the the celebration like you know even though I was new to the to the to the to the to the crew I was happy to be a part of that celebration because I was a fan I wasn't just, I wasn't just hired help and me and Amy really got close um during our trip to California that's when we, that's when we really 
hit it off because the first time we met a couple of times, you know, the first couple of times we met, it was very cordial, like, how you doing? I heard a lot about you, da, 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 da. But when we got to California, that's when we had a chance to really sit down and talk about music, like, one-on-one with me, her, her boyfriend, um, Ceylon, her original background singer. Like, we were just getting into these deep conversations about music. And I became a bigger fan because Amy knew her shit. So I always tell people if I want, if I want the world to know something about Amy, I want people to know that she wasn't just some girl doing music that had a couple of influences. Amy knew her music. She was one of a kind. You know, despite the demons and things that she wrestled against, Amy knew what she was doing. And even though she wasn't very ambitious because she that told me before that she didn't see herself making a third album, that's when I kind of knew that, you know, we were dealing with somebody who had a whole different thought process on life, and she didn't get it right until it was too late. But the thing is that she she really, you know, she, she brought that element back because she opened the door for artists like me. She kept that door open. Like, you know, you don't have to conform and do what all these other motherfuckers are doing. You keep doing what you're doing. Because Amy loved my stuff. When she heard my stuff, and she said, no, you got to open up for me, Ma. When we get back to New York, you got to open up for me. I love what you're doing. And that was it for me. That's all the inspiration I needed because, again, Amy doesn't owe me anything. I came into that situation as a background singer replacing one of the other background singers. She doesn't owe me anything. But the fact that she did that for me, that she was grateful enough to, to make me an opening act for her, her and her management, you know, I'm forever grateful to her for that, you know. And I, I miss her an awful lot. You know, I, it's, sometimes it's hard to watch certain clips and, takes me right back to that, that trip in California and, and different things like that. And, you know, and, and I don't, you know, I'm not one of those artists that get tired. You know, people get, oh, that's all I want you to mention. That. I'm like, look, man, I love it. People come up to me all the time, you know, and do the dance moves or they ask me questions about Amy. I don't never get tired of it because it's part of my history, you know? Right. And I'm, I'm damn, I'm very well proud of the history that I was a part of because of her, you know? Right. So you briefly just mentioned it, too. So for those that don't know as well, kind of talk about your time with uh, George Clinton and and how, you know, a lot of people should, if they don't already, know about George Clinton and what he's done for the music industry and funk. But kind of <laughs> go into your time uh, with him and, and all of that, as you just kind of briefly mentioned. Well, I mean, to, to give it, to, to start from the basic part of it, um, George Clinton saved my life even when, we, even when we didn't know each other because the Parliament, the classic Parliament Mothership Connection album is what truly saved me, saved me from my teenage years because I was going through a lot. My, my mother had remarried and I wasn't really feeling dude, so there was a lot of friction going on. And that album was the one album that I could come home from school, I will put the headphones on, it would take me to another world. Because at that time, it was so funny because the whole premise and concept of the Mothership Connection album was that George Clinton said that he wanted to take black people where you normally wouldn't see them, and that was out of space. That's why if you look at the album cover of Mothership Connection, you see a very skinny George Clinton on a UFO floating through the air, and then on the back of the album cover, he's in the back alley of the Detroit neighborhood. That was me. I said, now see, he, I understood exactly what he was doing. He was bridging the gap between both worlds, the futuristic and the reality. And that's exactly what I wanted to be a part of. So I remember telling my mother at 
12 or 13 years old, I said, I'm going to be a P-Funk member one day. My mom was like, what you know about P-Funk? <laughs> but, of course, from that point on, Parliament of Funkadelic became the the bar. As a matter of fact, to be totally honest, there would be no Plant Soul Syndrome without you. If you look at, if you look at my album cover for the Plant Soul Syndrome, it's pretty much a take on the Mothership Connection album. It's me paying homage to the man that I only gave my start in this music industry besides my grandfather, but George opened up the door for me and gave me a platform to become a P-Funk. And that wouldn't happen years later, but um, the influence of George Clinton on every level, that's the reason why he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because he came with a whole new concept. He's like the first gumbo guy. When I say gumbo, meaning that he took all the styles of music and put it in one bag and then put a crazy image on top of it. James Brown created the funk. Sly Stone diversified the funk. But George Clinton made funk like religion. It's like you believed every word that George would say when he would be like, I'm the mother's connection. We returned to clean the pyramids. I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? But then I got it after a while. I started doing more reading. And I'm like, oh, shit, he's doing that whole metaphysics thing. But he's doing it in the language of the street. Because George was crazy, but George is from the hood. He's from, he's from Plainfield, New Jersey. So you understand what I'm saying? So that gave me the direction for what I want to do with Planet 12 because there's that futuristic, eclectic musical side of me that love all kinds of music. But as you and a lot of other fans pretty much know, Law is also a certified Brooklyn hood boy from the street. So the thing is that how does that work? Because you couldn't be too weird where street motherfuckers be like, okay, what is he doing? And then you can't be too street where weird people could couldn't feel like, well, I can't really hang around him. He's a little too hardcore for me. So I walked the fine line of both ideals. And if it wasn't for George Clinton having that influence, I wouldn't have known how to do it. Like George showed me how to do it before I even met him through all those Parliament Funkadelic albums. He showed me how to be a leader. He showed me how to make certain things work that normally wouldn't work. He defied tradition. Why do you think Prince, keep, why do you think Prince keeps him so close? Because <laughs> right. look at Prince. Prince, Prince. Prince is my number one idol, but Prince wrote Erotic City as a tribute to Parliament Funkadelic. He said he wrote it after he came from a piece on concert. Because George was already doing it. And if you look at Prince's whole catalog, what is he known for? Because you, you couldn't put Prince in the box. You can't. And George Clinton was the one that led the way. He was the first one to say, don't put me in no box. I mean, I'm known for the funk, but we got some jazz over here. I'm doing some blues. And unlike all these other old school artists, I love hip-hop. So he was the first one to really embrace hip-hop. James Brown didn't really embrace hip-hop because he wasn't paying them. But George Clinton was the one that said, I want all y'all rappers to sample my records. I mean, think about it. He influenced the whole West Coast hip-hop sound. Dr. Dre, Chronic album, N.W.A. album, what do they all have in common? They sample 90% of Parliament Funkadelic records. So, I mean, I can, go, I, can go on and, I can go on and on about George's influence in my life, but, you know, he's also like a father to me, man, because on the road, when I went on the road with him and I lived with, I lived with him for a couple of months in Florida, he took care of me. Him and his family is very much like a family every time one of us get together. So even if I don't always do shows with him, a lot of times I would just come to the show and just hang out. And every now and then I'll get up on stage and he'll have me sing something or play something. But sometimes I just, sometimes I won't even get on stage. I'll just hang out with him and just chat it up with him. You know, I'm, 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 I'm happy for him and, and everything that he's doing now with the book. And, um, and that's another thing too. And I'm recommending that for everybody listening to the podcast. Um, Go and buy his book, his autobiography, if you want to know more about the music industry. Because, you know, George, George is, is, 
teaching in that book. Like he's showing you how the industry works because he's he's been a victim of it. He succeeded in it. He's failed in it. So he he has the knowledge and the wisdom that I think every artist should go out and get. So you know, long story short, I'm a PFUP member for life, and I'm proud of it. And you know, I, I love all those guys. 420 Front Mob, P4 All Stars, you know that that's that's my family. It's my extended musical family, and I wear my badge very proudly wherever I go. Right, and um, well, you know, I I kind of wanted to bring that up for those listeners out there that will listen to this podcast and kind of understand. Um, a lot of people don't know the story, so I kind of wanted to touch on that. So, um, what I did want to get in, um. I mean, it's almost uh, going on an hour now. So what I did want to get in before uh, I let you go is uh, kind of talk about, you, you mentioned that you, you have another album. We've mentioned it. So kind of just go into, um, it's called Psychotic Chameleon. Am, am I correct? Yes. Yes, you are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, kind of go into, uh, the you know, the process of, making this album and the labor of love that it's become and, and, you know, what's going on with, when can we, you know, get our hands on it and all that good stuff? Well, I mean, the the fans already got the little taste of it because I, I put like four or five songs on SoundCloud already, and that's usually breaking the mold because I don't know if people thought I was going to actually put the whole damn album on SoundCloud. I can't do that. But, you know, but my fans have been so supportive and they love when I – put new stuff so I figured okay let me give them a couple of more and and let them see what's going on here because some of the songs that didn't make the final cut of my first album I took a few of them and used it for this particular album that I'm working on now called Psychotic Chameleon and this is definitely going to be even crazier than my first album you know my first album is still crazy but this album here we 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 it took on a life of its own I, I already had started recording new songs um, in 2013, 2014, I would just, like, give snippets. But then, you know, life happens, you deal with different things, and you got to come back and work on some things. And, and as a writer, sometimes you have to live life a little bit to, to write the better song because you don't want to just come off and just write something because it sounds good or you're trying to rush product. And I think that the reason why it's building so much momentum now and why people can't wait to hear it is because we've been keeping them waiting long enough and we keep recording great new songs. So we're trying to figure out how, which ones are going to make the final cut for this record, and then we're going to have to put out an EP or something like that. So there's another project. I want to promote this while I'm at the podcast, people, in with us. Um, I'm working on a project with my, my DJ, DJ Khalif. Y'all know him well. Um, y'all seen him at the shows. Um, we're doing a straight-up real hip-hop R&B project called The Law and Leaf EP. It's just basically me and him doing the production, and it's very it's very different from a Law album because this is more like Jay Z and Kanye's Watch the Throne. Because as everybody knows, Khalif is not only an incredible DJ and producer, but he's also an MC too. So we're both rapping on it, we're producing on it, and it's going to be an EP. It's going to be like five or six songs. That's going to be like an appetizer to a little bit of what you're going to hear on um, the Psychotic Chameleon album. So I wanted to give the fans something new before the year ended so that way they can have more to look forward to. They can just know that we ain't just sitting around not doing shit. Like, we're recording and doing these shows. A lot of great things have happened um, over the last few months, you know, in addition to this Ja Rule situation. And now we just shot the video for the corporate agency that, that we're a part of now and, and different things of that nature. So um, 
psychotic chameleon is going to be crazy. I mean, the meaning is self-explanatory because I'm a chameleon when it comes to music, and I've always been called crazy ever since I was a kid, not just on a musical level, but personally, too, because of just the way I thought about things and because of me being daring and rebellious. I I always wanted to just do what nobody else was doing, and that made me crazy. So psychotic chameleon. It's going to be exactly what the album says it is. It's going to be off the wall, more diversity, more musical eclecticism, you know, just more for fans to chew, to, to chew their mouth on, just more to, to get into. So I'm going to say it again. If y'all love the first album and, and these mixtapes that we put out, y'all going to really flip over this psychotic chameleon album. I promise you. It's just quality music, diverse music at its finest. Not one bad track on there. I promise you that. It's going to be ridiculous. And I love I love albums like that when you just move on to the next song. Well, yeah, um, yes. it's been awesome talking to you tonight, uh, La. And you know, oh, I same guess here, La. Same here. Um, so I guess we'll have to do this again uh, shortly. Um, but oh, um, I want to put it out for all those people that should become a fan and should be following you. So I know we can find you on Twitter, but kind of just go down where we can find you on social and and get updates on what's going on and more specifically on how to get your new album and follow your new project. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, as everybody knows, Twitter, at Planet 12 Law. <laughs> Instagram, at Planet 12 Law. Um, Facebook.com slash um, Law Planet 12. Facebook.com slash Planet 12 Productions. And then my official website is Planet12Law.org. So they can find us and get updates on everything. I'm controlling the site, so and also follow Planet Twelve Nation too because they, they keep everything up to date with me and, and, and everything else. And for the last time I'm to let people know throughout the podcast, people understand I do not run the Planet Twelve Nation page. I don't know why people still think that I run that page when I have dedicated people who became fans actually a, a real dedicated fan runs that page. Like they were very much into what I was doing since MySpace, and they just wanted to be a part of everything. So they really run the page. So a lot of times when I can't do certain things, Plants Home Nation actually runs with the ball and keeps it dribbling while I'm taking a rest or while I'm dealing with other things. So there you go. Awesome. Well, it's been great talking to you, and um, I'm, I love that uh, we were able to do this. And like I said, we'll probably have to do this more in the future, but again... Oh, absolutely. Anytime, anytime. Anytime you need me, just let me know. I'm there for you. Thank you Great. so much. And oh, I do want to let people else know there, too. He um, Law has been on my blog, Love and Music Project, so if you want to go back yes. and, and read him, a lot of wisdom he's given on, this, on that, uh, that'd be awesome, <laughs> too. So, uh, thanks again uh, for joining me tonight, and Looking forward to keeping this going and uh, talking to you in the future. Yes, thank you so much, Dawes. Love and love support coming your way. Thank you. No problem. Have a good night.